0: This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. This week's sermon is by Father Brett Kroll. We are in the second sermon in a series of sermons called Explore God, where we're asking the big questions of life. And you should know that accompanying each sermon on Sunday morning, there are also discussion groups that are happening every night of the week um, in homes and in other locations throughout uh, our area. So if you would like to be a part of those discussion groups, uh, you can simply find Father Matt, Ask him where are the groups on which night, and he can let you know. You'll show up. There's a video to watch and then a discussion on the topic for that week. The topic for this week is the question, is there a God? That was really cold on Wednesday, and that might be some of the reason why you're wondering, is there a God, or if, if he exists, is he good? We were sitting at the breakfast table, and Julie was pleading with me, stay home. Don't go to work. Just stay here. It's so cold out there. And I said, well, I have to write a sermon today. So if I stay here, you're going to have to help me. So I turned to my children and I said, if somebody came to you and said they weren't sure that there was a God, what would you tell them? Simon, my four-year-old, said, I would get a really large hammer and hit them on the head with it. (laughs) Where did that come from? (laughs) I decided to come into the office where I might be better influenced. (laughs) The question is, is there a God? And if so, maybe more importantly, how can I know? Generally, there are two common avenues or approaches to the knowledge of God. One is the intellectual approach. The other is the experiential approach. Now, these are the two avenues or the ways to come at knowing God, but these are also two obstacles or objections. You might hear people say, well, I just don't think God exists. It doesn't make sense to my mind. It's an intellectual objection. Or they might say, I I haven't felt God in the way it seems other people have. I haven't experienced Him. So there's experiential objection. And in the last year, I've had two friends, one from high school, other from more recent, who have walked with the Lord for a long time and just in the last year have decided they're no no longer walking with the Lord. And, And one of them said the idea of God is just no longer reasonable to me. I don't know where we came from, I think it was just random chance, or maybe aliens or something, but God just doesn't make sense. The other of my friends said, I haven't felt God's presence, I haven't experienced him in the way that other people seem to have, and therefore I'm concluding, after all these years of trying to follow him, he's not there. Have you ever had doubts along those lines? can be deeply unsettling or have you ever sat for a time pondering eternity until you get flushed in the face and the room starts spinning and you feel like you need a handlehold hold to grab onto or perhaps you've been there frustrated and crying out god are you there where are you and you felt that it was met with silence Today we're going to focus on the intellectual approach. At the end of this series, in a month, we're going to be asking the question, can I know God personally? And that's where we'll focus more on the experiential approach. So as we come at this question from an intellectual standpoint, it's important for me to say at the beginning, uh, there is no argument possible to silence all doubt. The existence of God cannot be utterly proven. It's also true that the existence of God cannot be utterly disproven there's always remaining this this gap. And you might wonder, well, why is that? Why is it that I can always, if I need to, find a way around the arguments or, or just simply say, I just don't believe it? Well, it's because the Bible tells us that without faith, it's impossible to please God. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So the question for you this morning is, are you seeking God? because what God desires is in that gap. Why is it not clear as as clear as the thing right in front of me? Why can't I just see the truth that God is there? Because he wants there to be faith. And the Bible also tells us that faith is believing in the things we cannot see. There has to be an element of trust. That's what God desires. But he also hasn't made it completely impossible. He's not left us utterly in the dark. He wants us to know him, and so he has left us clues. Some would call them proofs for God or arguments for the existence of God. Tim Keller likes the language of clues for God. And if taken seriously and taken all together, those clues stacked up actually have some force to them. So we're going to consider some of those clues today. But before we do, we should also say, then why is it still hard sometimes to believe in God? If he wants to make himself available, and we also must say this before we get started, that there is an enemy. The Bible names him as the evil one, the devil, or also calls him the father of lies, and his every objective is to so obscure and confuse our minds about who God is that we either don't believe he exists, or we believe that God is far away, not good, or not on our side. So because of this, it means that whenever we ask these questions, we're not on neutral ground, we're on a battleground, and nothing short of eternal life or eternal death hangs in the balance. So turn in your Bibles to Acts 17, I'll be preaching from our Acts passage today. So this is Paul, who is one of the most important missionaries and teachers of that first Christian generation, and he's in Athens, the city of of wisdom, the ancient birthplace of wisdom and the fountain of philosophy. And if you look at verse 22, it says that Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus where they all gather, he said, "Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription." So he had been passing by, if you read back in the story, he'd been visiting the city, walking through the streets. There's idols and statues everywhere, some to Zeus, some to Athena, some to Ares. And he's he's seeing there's a religious atmosphere in the city. He even finds an altar to an unknown God. So the Greeks are so zealous that they said, you know what, there's probably a God out there that we haven't met yet. We're worshiping gods from all over the world. There's probably one out there that we haven't seen, and we don't want to offend this God, so we'll just put to an unknown God as a placeholder, a kind of blank slate. And when that God shows up, we'll put his name there. And Paul is saying, I'm, I'm here to proclaim that God. And this is a God you really need to know because he is, in fact, the maker of all things, and he is the only true and living God. But he's saying to them, I see that you are very religious. And we might wonder, is that true for us today? Would we say that our society or our culture is very religious? Well, for the last two or three centuries, what you might call the modern era, the predominant philosophies and ideas have been atheistic, the assumption there is no God. It's why when it comes to a series of explore God, what are the big questions, one of, the, uh, one of the, the obvious signs that we are in the modern era is that this is one of our questions, is there a God? That even if we are at the tail end of the modern era, which some and many believe is the case, we're still asking this question because for two or three centuries, the modern era has suppressed the idea of God, and suppress spirituality, and the underlying assumption is there is no God. So, if we come to the Bible, well, what does the Bible say about this question, is there a God? The Bible says much less than you would think. And why is that? Well, because the Bible is an ancient book written to an ancient people and for them, it was quite the opposite. The underlying assumption was, yes, there is a God, or there are gods, or religion, of course. Almost everyone in all places and all times had some kind of religion and a belief in a higher power. If you were to read the Bible, you're not going to find many arguments for the existence of God. Whenever the Bible does talk about someone who doesn't believe in God, it just says, well, they're foolish if they don't believe in God. More often, what you find is the Bible saying things like, where is God when evil people just keep on doing evil? If there was an ancient explore God series, that probably would be their question today: of Is the evil person and the wicked person going to keep on doing evil and get away with it? Because for them, they weren't thinking, "Oh, there's no God," but they did think, "He's probably far away, and he's not going to hold me accountable for what I'm doing." But the underlying assumption of the ancient world and the underlying assumption of the Bible is: yes, there is a God. When the Bible does talk about the existence of God in those few verses, it's usually saying, We can tell when we look at the natural world. So, a lot of the clues about the existence of God come from the natural world. And so, even just a few chapters earlier in the story, Paul is talking to a different group of folks. And he's saying to them, God has not left himself without a witness. For God has done good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Or as Benjamin Franklin said, beer is proof positive that there is a God and he wants us to be happy. (laughs) So Paul is saying, you look at the seasons, you look at the time of sowing and the time of reaping, and the regular occurrence of all of these things, it points to a personal God behind that, a maker who has brought these things to be. And so the ancient world more likely because it was an agrarian culture, saw the, the, the clearness of these things in a way that we don't, because for us, we say food doesn't come from the soil. It doesn't come from water and sun. Food comes from Aldi. And because we're disconnected with how the natural world actually works, we're maybe a little bit more blind to these things than the ancient world, which would say, yeah, I think we see evidence of a maker in the courses of the seasons. And this is actually the first clue we're going to talk about. And the clues are going to come in no particular order. This, this may not be the strongest uh, clue or proof or argument, but clue number one is the regularity of nature to sustain all life. And this is everything from the revolution of the earth around the sun, which is always 365 and a quarter days, to the seasons with the cycle of, of harvest time, everything to the law of gravity. We can depend on and rely on the regular occurrence of these things. And and furthermore, to the point, these things are very hospitable to life. These things make it possible for life to grow and flourish. Now, there was a secular philosopher in the modern era, not a believer, a guy named David Hume, and he said, these things are not a given. And actually, as a philosopher, it drove him nuts that people assumed, sure, the sun's going to rise tomorrow and the harvest will come again. He said, logically, you can't assume that. And we would say, well, actually, you're right. Apart from a maker, apart from a God who's causing all of these things to be, it may not be philosophically logical. But the regularity of sunrise and of harvest time, the gift of rain and grain, all of these to us is a clue pointing to a good, loving, and caring God who is sustaining all life even as we speak. But in the modern era, the default assumption has been Atheism. No, there isn't a God. But that assumption is eroding. You read a book like N.T. Wright's Simply Christian in one of his opening chapters, he's talking about the fact that that assumption that there is no God and that suppression of spirituality, that's fading quickly. And it's true that even during the modern era, when the thought leaders were predominantly atheistic, It's true that if you ask the average common person, do you believe in God, even then, throughout the modern period, most people would still say, yeah, I think there is a higher being, a supreme being, a higher power. And that in and of itself is gonna be clue number two. just the number of believers. And we take, for this, we take other religions as well, just the fact that people all throughout the earth and throughout history There have been far more who've said, yes, there is a God, than those who've said, no, there isn't. So the sheer number of believers in God or a higher being is a clue that there's something to this belief. If there is no God, this is more than just collective error. This is collective psychosis. And while a mass delusion on that scale is possible, you have to ask yourself the question, Is that really the best explanation why, for most times and most places in human history, the belief of God is there and strong? Of course, uh, others would object and say, well, that was then, this is now. We've progressed. The human race has grown up a little bit. We don't need those infantile ideas about God. And a couple things to say about that. One is, it's the largely atheistic ideologies of the modern era that led to the 20th century, which was by far the most uh, violent and bloodiest century in human history. I wouldn't call that progress. So that's, there's that. But then also, again, you look at the last two to three decades. And you see that spirituality and religiosity and and questions about God and seeking after God, that is starting to come back with full force. And the modern suppression of religiosity or spirituality is starting to erode away. Many people see this and attest to it. The pendulum is swinging back. And so it may be the case that, as Paul said, true for us too. I see that in every way you are very religious. Uh, There's another Christian thinker, a guy named James K.A. Smith, who said, you know, there are very few true and hardcore atheists. Likewise, there are very few true and hardcore believers. Most people are somewhere in the middle, and those who are religious are haunted by doubt. And those who are non-religious are haunted by belief. And as Christians, we would say, perhaps it is true in our time that religiosity is growing, spirituality is on the rise, and the belief in God is there and present in every person, though maybe hidden and harder to access for some. And therefore, we as Christians and as the church get to say along with Paul, what you worship or what you just intuitively, innately, instinctually know to be true, the unknown God that that you worship and you know is there, we proclaim to you. And this is our proclamation that God has come near in Jesus Christ, and He has risen from the dead. Now, many of the clues for the existence of God do have to do with, yes, the natural world, and then it would make sense they have to do with the creation of the natural world, that God is a maker. So, let's take a look at verses 24 and 25. Paul includes this in his argument. The God who made the world, and when he says world, he doesn't just mean the earth, For him, that word means the entire universe, everything that exists. For God, who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So clue number three is what some would call the first cause. And there are several variations on this. One variation goes like this. The world that is made, if you just observe the world, everything is changing. But nothing changes by itself. It always changes because it's acted upon by an external outside force. And at some point, there must be something that has changed less that can start that chain reaction of changing things. So another way to put it, think of a pair ripening on a tree, that pear doesn't ripen all by itself. It's acted upon by time, and also by sun and the tree that it's hanging on. Or as the psalmist says about the changeless changer, this is Psalm 102, of old you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. Another variation on this clue of, of God being the first cause. Okay, put on your thinking caps, but I know you can do this. Think about cause and effect. We live in a world and a universe where everything has a beginning, and therefore everything was caused by something else. Now, it's interesting that uh, we would say nothing comes from nothing. Something always comes from something else or someone else. So go back to the pear. That pear came from somewhere. It came from the tree. That tree came from something. It came from a seed, but that seed came from a pear, which also came from a tree, which came from a seed, which came from a pear. But that pear came from a tree, on back to the very first pear tree. But everything comes from something else. Nothing comes from nothing. And here is also fascinating that among scientists and cosmologists, those who believe in a God and, and those who do not, there's pretty universal agreement that the universe has a beginning. What is now called the Big Bang Theory, and as Christians, we're fine and happy with the Big Bang Theory, because it basically says there was a time when there was nothing, and then something happened, and then there was everything that exists. Sounds a lot like, and then God said, let there be light, bang. So the universe began to exist, It's almost universally agreed on this. But if we believe in cause and effect, which we do, because we see it everywhere in the world around us, then it means that the universe must have a cause outside of itself. Now, here's the rule. Everything must have a beginning, like we've been saying, except there must be one and only one exception to that rule. If there wasn't, nothing would exist. That's what we call the uncaused cause. God is the uncaused cause that has caused all things to be. Now, the objection to this is, well, if there's God, then something or someone caused God. But if something caused God, then something had to cause that something that caused God, and something had to cause that something, and on and on. And that is absurd. It's logically impossible. There cannot be an infinite number of causes. At some point, there has to be a beginning. At some point, there has to be an exception to the rule that everything is caused by something else. And that beginning has to be outside the universe. So, as Christians, we, we say, well, that beginning must be God, who alone can create something out of nothing. He is the exception, and He alone. Or, as Paul says when he's writing to the Colossians, He, meaning Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. And and by the way, if you need to know who God is and what he's like, look at Jesus. You'll know everything you need to know when you look at Jesus. So Jesus is the image of the invisible God. By him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Now, If the arguments around cause and this and all of that are are too confusing, then then here's the simplest way to understand it, to boil it down. If you're asking this question or if you're in a conversation with somebody else who's asking about the existence of God, just simply ask them, where did it all come from? Because that's at the heart of this question. Where did everything come from? You have to have some explanation for everything. And you could say random chance, but think about it. Is random chance the most logical explanation. If you spend some time deeply thinking about it, then you might come to the same conclusion that most other people have, which is, no, it it actually makes more sense that the reasonable explanation for the existence of all things is a personal God, a maker, who has caused them to be. Not only is there the fact of existence, but then you also have the fact that all the universe is so orderly. This is another clue. It's, it's related to the regularity of nature that I was talking about a minute ago, but that everything from the structure of a beetle upwards to the laws of physics that keep the planets in motion, many have looked at the world and they said, it's hard to deny that there is intelligent design by the world that, was, that is all around us. The way things fit together It would be pretty remarkable if that all were just chance. But not only is there order to the universe, the universe is hospitable, too. It's miraculously capable of sustaining life. So here's clue number four, that there's order in the universe, and the universe is open to life. This is sometimes called the fine-tuning Argument and this one is ascribed to by many who are not Christians or believers in a higher power But they still look at the universe and they say it is finely tuned and here's what they mean The fine-tuned universe is the proposition that the conditions that allow life in the universe can only occur within a narrow set of universal physical constants or as Stephen Hawking the the famous astrophysicist said the laws of science as we know them at present contain many fundamental numbers like the size of the electric charge of the electron and the ratio of the masses of the proton and the electron. And there are many other numbers like this. The remarkable fact is that the values of these numbers seem to have been very finely adjusted to make possible the development of life. Or philosopher Al Plantiga says it this way, it's as if there are a large number of dials that have to be tuned just so within extremely narrow limits for life to be possible in our universe. And any one of those dials, any one of those dials adjusted just a click one way or the other would mean matter couldn't, gravity wouldn't work, matter couldn't coalesce, stars wouldn't exist, nothing would exist. So there's order in the universe, and the universe is hospitable to life. Clue number five is the clue for human longing. Look now at verse 27. So after Paul says, This is the God who created the earth and the heavens and from one man caused all nations to spread up out on the earth, verse 27, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. So let's consider that word seek for just a moment. As humans, we are seeking, searching beings. There's something in us that's constantly saying there's got to be something more. Or as a famous Christian, Augustine, said a long time ago, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. We're going to keep searching, we're going to keep seeking until we find our meaning and our purpose in you, God. Have you ever... while we're on the subject of pairs? Have you ever bit into a juicy, succulent, perfect pair and you just thought, well, I'm just gonna go have another one and then that second attempt was met with disappointment? And how about things more important than pairs, like relationships, your career, your salary, what you thought your life would be up to this point if you're met with disappointment? You're often saying there's gotta be more than this. But even for somebody who has a great life, And on the best day of a really great life, that little voice inside of you is saying, but is this as good as it gets? As amazing and wonderful as all this is, there's something in us that longs for there to be something more. So this is the clue for human longing. The longing for love, joy, and beauty that no sex, money, or food, or experience can satisfy, it points us to something more. Or as C.S. Lewis writes, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. People feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. We have this longing for perfection. We have this desire to be complete and yet our experience tells us that we are not perfect and we're not complete. And this is a clue that there is another world that is perfect and there is another being who is complete and perfect. Now in the 19th century in Germany there was a fellow named Feuerbach. And he took this idea of human desire and longing, and he, with, with a more cynical approach, he said, yeah, see, there is no God, and what you call God and, and what you say about heaven is just simply these human desires projected then into God and in heaven. So because you desire love, you've invented a God who is perfect love, Because you desire power, you've created this idea of a God who is all-powerful. Because you desire joy and beauty, you've made up this idea that heaven is infinitely beautiful. Well, C.S. Lewis takes that exact same argument. He just flips it on its head and removes the cynicism and says, actually, there is a God. It's just as logical, equally as logical to say, there is a God of love, power, and beauty. And since he made us, It only makes sense that our desires would align with those things. So these are some of the clues about God, and obviously there are many others that we don't have time to get to today. But taken seriously and taken together, they they offer a pretty compelling argument. There is a God. But perhaps, like for many, the more important question for you is, not so much is there a God, but what's he like? Is he on my side? Who is he? Well, the first thing we should say is, if there is a God, and, and I believe with my entire being that there is a God, if there is a God, then it follows logically that I am not him. He is God, and I am not. I've told you this story before, but it, it fits really well right here. When, when I was seven, I came to the conclusion that I knew everything that there was to know. Now, this conclusion was innocently and fairly logically deduced. One day, I was wondering, how much is there to know? And maybe maybe do I know everything already? And so I started thinking, trying to think of anything that I didn't already know. And as I kept thinking, I I couldn't think of anything that I didn't know. (laughs) So I concluded, I guess I know everything there is to know. And I went to my mom, and I told her this. And she said, go vacuum the living room. So if I am to know anything about God, he must be the one to teach me. The philosophical arguments and the clues, they they all have their place, but at the end of the day, it must be God himself who teaches me about himself. Look at verse 29. Paul's talking to them, and he's, he's talking about all the idols that he's seen, and he says, look, if we are his offspring as you yourselves believe and know, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or a statue, an image formed by art and the imagination of man. And we might look at that belief of a god being an idol or a statue, and we might think that's kind of silly. Who would really believe that? But I got to tell you, You have lots of silly and wrong beliefs about God, and so do I. And we need to unlearn them, and we need to let God teach us about himself. He reveals himself. He shows himself to us in the Bible, which is called the Word of God, and at the table, which will will be there in a moment. So whenever you're reading the Bible, any passage you're, you're reading, Here's a really great question to ask. What is this passage that I'm reading right now? What does it tell me about who God is and what he's like? As an example, we could just take the passage that we had this morning, the story of Paul in Athens. What does this story tell us about God? And if I were to sum it up in one phrase, I would say this story is telling us that God is a gracious giver. He's a gracious giver. Paul said he's overlooked the times of ignorance. In other words, God cuts you slack when you don't know something. He's a gracious giver that even though he doesn't need us, he's not served by human hands, he doesn't live in human temples, even though he doesn't need us, he is near to every one of us, this passage tells us. He's the one who gives us life, gives us breath, gives us all things, and in him we live and move and have our being. And this is perfectly in line with what we heard in the gospel today when Jesus is proclaiming if you ask if you are seeking if you're knocking at the door you'll find what you're looking for you'll receive what you're asking for the door will be open to you and your father in heaven he says is a giver of good gifts above all he gives the gift of himself in the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit who is the love of God the very presence of God who is God himself, his very being given to you. And Jesus said, if you ask for that, you are assured that you will receive it. God is a gracious giver. He is there and he's on your side, and he offers you today the gift of himself. Whether you accept that gift or not is a matter of great importance. In fact, it would be true to say there's no decision in your life that matters more than this one. So if you're a believer here this morning, I hope that you've been encouraged in any place where you might be haunted by doubt. I hope you've also been equipped so that you can carry on these conversations and these questions with others. A great way to begin is to say, guess what I just heard the other day? Or guess what I was just learning about? Then that invites into a place of sharing rather than you telling or proclaiming. Guess what I just heard? If you're here today and you're a seeker, you're one of those who you're not yet decided on the question of, is there a God or not? And here's what I encourage you to do. Grab a Bible. If you don't have one, we will give you one. And because I said that Jesus is all you need to know in order to know who God is, get that Bible and read the parts of the Bible that talk about Jesus. They're called the Gospels. If you know a friend who believes in Jesus and you're able, do that together with him or her because they'll be able to help you understand some of the things you might not understand but get a bible start reading about Jesus the next thing i'll tell you is come to church don't miss a week come here and the last thing i'll tell you is come to my house i'm serious because every wednesday night at 6:30 the, the res group or the small group that julie and i lead is specifically geared for either newer believers or those who are seeking after God, and we simply study the Bible and ask that question: What is this saying about who Jesus is? And I promise I'll keep the hammers very far away from Simon. <laughs> Let me pray. Father, I do ask. Thanks for listening. Our of vision at Church in of the your Resurrection power that you would is to equip to us everyone your fullness, for transformation. Your love and your as part of that vision, we love to, to share dynamic Christ teaching, son, original music, and stories and of transformation. Amen. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast.